You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 85, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. And uh, right now, there's a lot of folks experiencing extra high temperatures, so I hope you all are staying cool and hydrated. Now, before we get to today's episode, I want to thank all of the show's patrons who helped to keep the show moving forward. Supporting the podcast is easy to do, and there are several ways to do so. You can use Patreon, uh, or you can make a one-time donation. But uh, I will tell you more about all of that at the end of the show. One more show business thing. If you haven't done it already, please take a moment to rate the show on your podcatcher. It's one of those little things that help to boost the podcast, and I will say thank you in advance. So the International Herpetological Symposium was this past week up in Chicago. And I drove up there and gave a little presentation on Wednesday. I believe this is the 43rd year for the IHS, and I think the first meeting I attended was maybe in 1984 or 85. Uh, My memory is a little fuzzy on that. But at any rate, it was fun to attend for the day and to take in some of the presentations. And uh, I want to give a shout-out to Justin Eldon and Mike Clarkson and Rachel Pickstein, just to name a few. Oh, yeah, I don't want to forget uh, Hayden Al-Harash. It was good to meet you, Hayden. Our guest this week is Dr. Stephen Elaine of Kent University in the UK, and we talked about some of his research projects that include grass snakes and midwife toads. Steve also keeps the science flowing on his social media accounts, and we cover some of that as well. Now, there was an internet outage towards the end of our conversation, and Steve graciously came back on to help wrap things up, and I think I have it stitched together nicely, although there's just a couple of word drops in the recording that I couldn't repair. So let's get to my conversation with Steve Elaine. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, it's my pleasure to be talking with Dr. Stephen Elaine, all the way from Kent University in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you for having me on. Hello, everybody. Uh, and uh, is, it, is it Steve or Stephen? What do you prefer? Uh, I prefer Steve, uh, just because, yes, yeah, Stephen's a bit informal. Uh, more formal, sorry. Yes, more like your parents telling you off, whereas Steve's more informal. You the sort of uh, okay. name you get called when you're down the pub with your mates on Friday night. <laughs> okay, good. Steve, it is. Yeah, that's with me. You know, nobody calls me Michael but my mother. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've always been Mike. So, okay, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I, I've been uh, following you on Twitter for, I don't know, uh, a few years now and maybe some other social media. Mastodon, too, I think. And, um, it's uh, good to talk to you in person and get a, a, a better idea of what you're up to. And uh, you can you tell me you're a PhD researcher, but are you an ecologist or a biologist? What do you what do you refer yourself as? Uh, so yeah, I would regard myself as a as an ecologist. So I've been working with grass snakes here in the UK, which is one of our, our native species of, of snakes. Uh, they're a colubrid. They're very similar. So the water snakes that people will be familiar with in North America, uh, and they're semi-aquatic as well, feeding on amphibians and fish and living in wetland environments. It's just that, yeah, they're, they're the European cousins to, uh, to Nerodia. 
So we're working on those guys looking at aphidiomycosis, which was uh, once called snake fungal disease, and you know now seems to be used interchangeably, at least in informal circles. Uh, but when it comes to publications and, and the research community, it's sort of about aphidiomycosis, trying to make that term more scientific uh, and unified. Uh, although, you know, if you say one or the other to those of us in the field, we know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, at least uh, at least here, the acronym SFD is is quite common. Exactly, yeah. Just because it's easier to say, uh, and when you're trying to communicate that to members of the public, the last thing you want to do is chuck loads of jargon at them and a hard-to-pronounce word because you're just going to switch them off. They need something short and snappy, uh, and as long as you know what it is, then it's fine. Right, but I think it there's no harm in tossing around a phidiomycosis. Oh no, no, especially not no, and and this is the uh, you know the whole you know the whole communication barrier right when it comes to the public and scientists and trying to reduce it as much as possible. You know, can't hurt, uh, but you know now and again you have to throw out some large words just to uh, you know inform people that there is this change in in nomenclature with, with you know bits and pieces. Uh, and yeah, we should be using these more scientific terms, but yeah, we're all familiar with the old terms as well, such as FSD, just because it's easy easier to say. Uh, and you know, it was the name for this disease for the best part of a decade or more. So it's still ingrained in our brains and within the research community. Uh, just wow. like, you know, just like with lots of other diseases, you know, COVID-19 for a while was called SARS-CoV-2, uh, and was then, you know, named as such. Uh, and so, yeah, you can kind of use those two interchangeably as well. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, the work you're doing with the grass snakes, uh, are you studying their ecology or is this also related to the uh, SFD? The, the uh... Sure. So it's, it's a bit of both. So uh, although they're our most widespread snake, we know very little about their ecology or at least their population dynamic, which is what I'm studying. Other populations have been studied elsewhere in Europe which is great, uh, but how that relates to those in, in Great Britain, we're not entirely sure because those populations have been studied in Italy or Switzerland, or places where the geography, the, you know, the underlying ecology of the region is very different to that here in Great Britain just because it's a lot colder, wetter, and more miserable, as I'm sure every Brit would tell you <laughs> compared to the rest of Europe. Uh, and I, I think it's just a case of them being so widespread that they've been neglected. You know, they're not this rare or this super sexy species, as it were. So people haven't gone and tried to figure out what's going on because at that moment in time, they haven't had the draw or the need to. Uh, and my personal belief is that when it comes to, to snakes, at least in Great Britain, they were a... <laughs> They were a victim of, of the vast British Empire, where people would disappear off to Thailand, India, elsewhere, you know, study the cobras and the vipers, you know, of Africa, etc., uh, and try to figure out more about them, because we knew next to nothing compared to the species in, you know, their own backyards. Uh, just because, you know, they were seen every day, they were taken for granted, and there's kind of that legacy that's washing away at the moment where more people are interested in these more widespread species because we're recognizing that they're not disappearing but they're becoming less common uh, than they once were and one of the reasons why that may be is aphidiomycosis or sfd which is where my research comes in to a 
figure out a little bit about the ecology and population dynamics of grass snakes, but also what the impacts of aphidiomycosis is on those populations. And unfortunately, because of limitations, because of COVID, you know, everything that's happened for the past few years around the world has meant things have been upside down. I've only been able to study a single population, but with that population, we have seven years worth of data now. So oh. uh, there were a few master students that were monitoring the snakes prior to me coming along. So I've had their data to play with, as well as my own. So we've been able to try to, you know, do as much work as possible with that data. But when you look at any species in Great Britain, you know, you can pick up a, a, you know, a guidebook to our insects or our birds, flick open a page, put your finger on it, point at a species, and there'll be data dating back, you know, to the Victorian times in terms of population that will transfer that species. With reptiles and amphibians, it only dates back as, you know, far as the, the 1980s, if you're lucky. Uh, oh, and wow. For specific sites, yeah, de depending on where you are, you know, it's luck of the draw. So, yes, we have seven years worth of data, but in the grand scheme of things, as a drop in the ocean, you can't really draw any long-term trends uh, on that, which is why in the future I'd like to extend this study further and try to get as much data as possible to figure out what's going on and how we can mitigate any, any negative effects, uh, should there be any. That's amazing that uh, there's that it's so contemporary. Um, I guess you know cobras are really sexy, and your backyard gardens gar uh, grass snake is not. So. Uh, exactly, yeah. This is the the issue. You know, cobras are, are quite sexy. You know, some of them are quite large. They're venomous. They hood up. You know, they make their presence known. Whereas with grass snakes, like with garter snakes and water snakes, you know, you catch them, they musk on you, they play dead. Uh, and I guess the smell just puts people off. But thankfully, because I caught so many uh, over the past few summers, I'm now immune to their smell, which is wonderful for me. Not so much for the people around me, uh, because my field site is in a in a small rural village uh, in the east of England. And on my way back from the field site, I'd cycle you know, the two kilometres between the house I was staying at for those three summers uh, and uh, my field site and back again. I'd stop off in, in the local pub on the way back, you know, for catching and processing snakes for 10 or 12 hours a day, depending how long I was there and what the weather was doing. Walk into the into the pub, go to the bar, uh, ask for, a, you know, a pint of beer or cider. Uh, and because I've been mussed continuously by grass snakes all day, uh, you know, everybody would turn around and be like, uh, hey, Steve, have you been playing with those snakes again? I'm like, yeah. Like, <laughs> you, you, you might want to change first. Uh, and yeah, just completely oblivious to being covered in this foul-smelling, rotten fish-like musk because you have just been so overexposed that uh, yeah, I can't smell it anymore. But obviously, <laughs> everybody else can, uh, and I should have guessed what was going on as soon as I walked in, and you know, people started to move away from me and you know, uh, try to get away from the smell. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so tell me, um, in terms of the uh, the small population that you studied do you do you see it as being much different from the european uh populations in terms of their ecology what they're eating uh that kind of thing or what uh, their activity days and things like that so their activities are very similar obviously we have to take into account my population being slightly more northern than those in in the rest of europe just because you know great britain slightly more northern than 
Germany and Switzerland and France, etc. Uh, but their activity is pretty much the same. Uh, they're active between about eight o'clock in the morning through till eleven o'clock. Uh, you know, for that three-hour window. During the middle part of the day, you're not going to see them unless they're out hunting or, or doing other bits and pieces because it's just too warm. Uh, and then again, uh, between about four and seven p.m., you know, that's when they're going to be basking again in the long grass underneath your cover boards. Uh, but yes, that hot part in the middle of the day when you know, you, when I just tended to uh, do some maintenance on site or sort of my data entry and do other bits and pieces that needed to be done because yeah you've got a hope in hell of trying to find a snake because it's too warm they're active they're doing things you know especially at the beginning of the season where they're trying to find mates they've got other bigger things on their mind than, than me trying to find them uh you know the whole the whole life ahead of them with what they're eating we're not entirely sure uh so this is something that unfortunately was put on the back burners because of covid uh which i'm hoping to complete soon so in the early stages of planning all my research, we decided it would be a good idea to take or collect some fecal samples from snakes uh, that avoid their feces as part of their anti-predatory responses, along with the muskie when, when they pick them up. And so I've collected a large number of these over, over the past few summers. They're you know, preserved in ethanol, ready to go to the lab for, for metabar coding. And that was something that I was supposed to be doing, uh, but then COVID came along and sort of cancelled those plans. So hopefully soon those will be sent to a lab and somebody else is going to do that hard work for me. Uh, so I, you know, I'm going to thank them in advance for that, uh, for <laughs> picking up uh, the torch, as it were, and, and carrying it to the destination where it should be. But uh, we suspect at the site that I've been studying that as well as the amphibians and the fish that the grass wants are known to eat, that they're probably eating... Uh, a large proportion of birds or small mammals just because the cover boards that they're inhabiting underneath them you know depending on on the day and the location of the habitat type there could be you know a dozen or so rodents or small mammals underneath there as well as the snakes uh, and they're almost certainly interacting particularly uh, particularly given uh that one of the snakes i call you know, I have kept corn snakes before, so you know I know what a snake looks and feels like when it has a, a rodent in its you know, in its stomach. And there was, you know, definitely not a rat, but you know, something large and and rat-like, uh, you know, in the mid-body of this snake that had recently been swallowed and was in the process of being digested, which meant that that was great because that snake wasn't going to go anywhere anywhere fast, which meant processing was a lot easier. The other great thing with grass snakes, I should note as well. Is that I was photographing all of their belly pattern to tell individuals, you know, apart from one another, which meant I didn't need to mark them for the capture mark recapture because they've got this beautiful natural, you know, variation in their in the ventral scale coloration. And to get those photos, I had to flip them upside down on a white acrylic sheet, take some photographs, and then manipulate those in some software once I got back from the field to be able to make sure everything was as uniform as possible uh, and, you know, match them up. But the great thing with grass snakes is that they like to play dead, which means that they're easy to manipulate, take those photographs, take the skin swabs, measure them, weigh them, etc., and then pop them back before they've even realized what's happened. Uh, so the natural behaviors were, I'd say, paramount to ensuring that I was able to conduct my research. 
just because it meant that they were more cooperative than you know a snake that likes to fresh around a bit and uh, you know try to bite you. Excellent, um, and not having to clip, clip scales, or or I mean, you don't even have to use a pit tag or anything because of these unique patterns. Exactly. Yeah, it just made things a whole lot easier, which meant that the ethics side of things was plain sailing. The, the protocol for the field work was really simple, and hopefully, uh, you know, people can take my methodology away and and you know. Uh, study a different population of grass snakes and see if they find similar results to my own, which would be great. Because again, because this was only completed at a single site, we don't know whether or not that's representative for all grass snakes or just this one population in Eastern England. Okay. And, and uh, let me ask you this. When you uh, you, you have these, these dossiers of, of snake undersides that that uh, you have to compare to see if you've recaptured them or not do you do you just do that uh yourself using your own brain or do you have some software that helps with that or so an interesting question and it's a bit of both so in the beginning it was by eye and then i trans because I was catching you know hundreds of snakes within the summer then moved over to uh a piece of software called Wild ID, which was uh-huh. uh, designed for matching animals caught uh, via camera trap or trail cam data, specifically like whale sharks and giraffes and stuff that have you know unique markings as well. So I wasn't entirely sure if it would work with the grass snakes, but uh, yeah, in the end it worked fine, and it outperformed my ability to recognize snakes uh, when I was you know, comparing all the images side by side one at a time. Nice. Uh, that's that's amazing, and uh, you know, otherwise, I mean, every time you add a new snake to your data set, it's it's another comparison point too. It just keeps getting worse and worse as you, as you yeah, get, uh, exactly bigger numbers. And yeah, as I'm sure most people can work out, is that when you add a few more snakes to to that database of images, the number of matches rises exponentially. So you have to go through it. You know, it's okay with a handful of images. When you get past, you know, a few dozen and you're into hundreds, yeah, there's no way you're going to be able to do that effectively by eye sitting there scrolling through everything, you know, when you're at your computer or laptop, et cetera, which is where I think some of the error for, on my part came from is just fatigue of uh. sitting there scrolling through the fouls as potential matches and not spotting something that was, you know, 100% spot on because with the, the, the patterns themselves, in every single, not in every single image I took of the snakes, they were laying flat. Some of them were rotated slightly. Some of them were covered in dirt. Some of them were in the process of sloughing, etc. And so the image wasn't, you know, it wasn't always clear. It was the same individual through, through time. Some of them also suffered uh, various types of trauma between captures. So there's one snake that, that I caught that had uh, some. You know some lacerations on it on its ventral scales, maybe from a predator or, or some farm equipment or, or something like that. That meant that I missed it, but the software was able to obviously spot the areas outside of that region of damage and say, "Hang on a second, that's this individual here that you caught previously last year or last month or whenever it was." Whereas I was just focusing on that damage and hang on a second, I've not seen a snake like this before because it it looked kind of semi-healed, but not you know not too fresh. Uh, 
and and so yeah that there's me making this assumption and the software just comes along and slaps around the face and goes come on you idiot it's this snake uh <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and 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 makes your jobs i mean you you would be months and months and months trying to figure this stuff out otherwise yeah exactly so i i tended to do the matching and batches of you know 80 or so just so that it was easier for for me to do it in that chunk because uh, you had to go through everything, rotate the images, crop them. In some cases, adjust the contrast. Uh, because when I'm taking them outside, if it's a sunny day, I try to take them in the shade uh, so that there wasn't any bright spots or scale reflections. Because after a snake has just sloughed, their belly pattern is almost iridescent in the right light. Uh, yeah. And so try to reduce it as much as possible. But there are some times when that just isn't possible or it's too dark. Because uh, A, it's getting late or B, there's a thunderstorm coming in and you're trying to rush around to get stuff done before you get wet and everything gets ruined. And you know, that happened a couple of times where the <laughs> where the forecast for the weather was one thing and the complete opposite happened, uh, which I guess may be one of the reasons why us Brits are so angry with the weather is that we get told one thing <laughs> and the opposite happens. Uh, oh boy. But one of my best days for captures when it was pouring with rain uh, in the middle of the summer and I suspect the reason being is that we had this period of really nice weather for about a week or so beforehand, and then a week of really terrible weather. And during that week when it was really good, I suspect that most of the snakes at my field site had just fed or were getting ready to lay eggs, etc. And because of the, the need to keep warm and active, they were trying to seek out these refuges where there was the remaining heat for you know, uh, the cold, wet period set in. And so they were seeking out my, my cover boards because, you know, they're jet black. They're going to be, uh, you know, absorbing and radiating a bit of heat. Uh, and, yeah, despite the fact I got soaked through, I caught 25 snakes in a single afternoon. So uh, oh, it yeah. was a bonus day for the, for the data uh, and worth it, despite the fact that, uh, yeah, when I got home, I could, you know, could have jumped in the bath and probably been dry than I was uh, in that moment of time. <laughs> Yes. Plus, uh, the, uh, musk and, and, uh, of 25 snakes is, uh, not to be underestimated. Oh, no, no, no. It, it's not. And thankfully, yeah, we're wearing gloves because it's a biosecurity protocol and everything else helps, you know, yeah. just get, stopping it, get on your hands. Uh, but the water and, you know, from the rain and everything else as well helps to wash that away from your equipment and your clothes a little bit more than when it's dry out. Uh, so yeah, thankfully that dampened the, the smell of things but yeah i could remember coming home and being absolutely soaked through uh and, and yeah just thinking that yeah by the bathtub full of water now i could probably dry if i jumped in it uh <laughs> you know got off got a towel dried myself down had a quick shower put on some 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 fresh clothes uh and then you know had to find somewhere to dry my data sheets out on so they didn't get absolutely ruined uh which again is something we have to contend with if field work in the rain and just a, a tip of advice that I learned really early on, pardon me, in my career, uh, if you're doing field work in the rain, don't use a pen, always use a pencil uh, because ah. the ink won't run. And when it dries, you know, it, you'll still be able to read what you've written uh, no, matter what, no matter what happens. So, yeah. I see. Okay. That's a, that's a good tip. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me take this in another, in another direction 
to and now because now I'm wondering how did you get into a into this line of uh, uh, I don't want to call it work, uh, but into this uh, career. What uh, did you do this as a kid, or how did this happen to you? Yeah, that's a very good question, uh, especially seeing as you know most of the men in my family are engineers working as mechanics or you know in in that kind of field, and there's me as the black sheep that's gone into 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 research <laughs> and herpetology specifically. And it is kind of something I've done since I was a kid. You know, I've always been interested in you know ponds and rooting around in them and trying to find wildlife and stuff. And just as I grew older and matured, uh, you know, I was able to to find this niche for myself. Uh, it, it, you know, doing what I'm doing now, and hopefully will continue to do so into the future, where by through surveying amphibians and reptiles, you kind of gain this notoriety for knowledge and expertise uh you know that, that was you know found that through my my bachelor's in zoology uh then did a master's uh in ecology evolution and conservation and that then led to, to the phd uh and each step that i took felt like a natural progression there, would, there was a two-year gap between my bachelor's and my master's just because at that time you know i needed a break I uh, needed sure. you know, to do something else, clear my headspace, uh, and find the right opportunity. So at that time, the government wasn't offering any sort of financial assistance to, to master students. You had to you know, find a professor or a lab with some money, apply to, to the lab, and, and you know, go down that route. Whereas with like post-2016, I'm pretty sure that's when they introduced it, you, know, you could get some financial assistance if you you know, found a place or a position to be able to facilitate that, to help you get there. So that's how I, I got onto my master's program and then the PhD afterwards. Uh, so yeah, I was just biding my time until, you know, either that opportunity came along or, you know, something like the, the grant program came around, uh, which, you know, allowed me to complete some research in the meantime and also, uh, you know, work on science communication skills and some publications and just general science stuff whilst also working full-time and you know trying to fit that in around but you know it, it worked out in the end so you know i'm glad that things took a bit of a, a detour as it were and then you know came back onto the, the main trail uh but yeah i wouldn't have it would change it for the world because everything's worked out and uh i gained some valuable skills in those couple of years between my bachelor's and my master's i think some people need that time off um not only to sort of come up for air but maybe to start thinking about what kind of questions they're interested in answering or finding uh, answers to, right? I mean, if you may not know what, you, oh yeah, I want to work on a master's. Uh, what <laughs> you know? <laughs> what? Where's my focus? What's uh, what's interesting to me? And uh, like you say, where can I land uh, an opportunity <laughs> in a lab or something? So. Uh, I, I kind of get that. I think a lot of people do that too. Uh, they they get a little break in between these, the next step, uh, and it's a usually a useful thing. It is. It is something that I'd recommend. Just yeah, to to get that that break in, so you don't burn out academically or you know, personally. You, you know, you need to take a breather, but also it does help to to frame your perspective and, as you say, try to figure out what questions you want to try to answer next, or at least work towards. Yeah. Because, you know, you can have that personal goal of, yes, let's do a master's. But then come the questions of where 
and what am I going to do? <laughs> and sometimes you need, a, you know, some time to reflect on that and to, you know, to, you know, you've got to be headstrong with this sort of thing. But, you know, being, you know, to, uh, you know, guns blazing about thing can be damaging as well because you need to reach out to people. You need to try and figure out where these opportunities are, what, what questions those labs are working with. And, you know, by taking a, a little break, that gives you the opportunity to, to do all of the groundwork uh, and lay the foundations to, to later stuff, uh, hopefully at least. Uh, and then you can build from there and hopefully go on and, you know, fulfill the rest of your potential aspirations. And yeah, you, you'll look back at that break you had. And at the time, you know, for me, you know, at times it felt frustrating because some of my colleagues were off doing their masters. They found those opportunities, etc. And there was me like, ah, if only that was me. But as I said, that wouldn't have changed anything because uh, it's all worked out in the end. Sometimes you have to trust yourself too. You can do. Uh, you know what? I'm, I don't have it yet, but I'm going to get it. No, no, definitely. And I, I think trusting yourself can sometimes be the hardest thing, uh, yeah. especially when you compare yourself to others of your, you know, your cohort or your friends, you know, a, a yeah. little bit too often than you should. Uh, you know, everybody achieves things at different rates and opportunities come to different people at different times. And you just need to, to remember that sometimes. Yeah. It's a natural thing, but at the same time, you know, don't, don't get hung up on it. Uh, and the, the science communication thing, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I follow you on some social media, uh, and you're all, you're posting, you post some stuff that you've been in, involved with or up to, but you're also posting other things that are going on. Um, maybe other things with the herpetofauna of Great Britain, but just uh, some some science stuff in general. I think that's interesting. Is that something that you felt like uh, it came naturally to me to you, or do you feel like that's uh, uh, an important part of uh, who you are as a scientist? Uh, I'd say it's a bit of both, and you know, I've always approached science communication as when it comes to the content that I'm sharing and creating as explain you know as if i was trying to explain something to my parents you know they come from non-academic backgrounds and sometimes over the years you know there's been some <laughs> some very frustrating conversations between us about you know what i do why i'm doing it all that sort of stuff uh and so from the very early days i was like okay i need to try and get this point across let's write it down as if i was you know sending, sending this to my mother you know would she understand this would she be able to make sense of it with her rudimentary knowledge of biology and science, etc., uh, and so you know, I've sort of stuck with that philosophy because yes, science is a powerful tool, but unless everybody can understand it, then you know, what's the point? You know, that there's you know all of these conspiracy theories about COVID and everything else that science has achieved over the past hundred years or so, uh, mainly because people have misunderstood one or two things, uh, and so you need to try and break things down. Uh, and make it as accessible as possible. And I think that's one, you know, that's a valuable tool that scientists can have. It's all well and good publishing your research in these top tier journals uh, and getting millions of citations. But if you can't describe your thought process or your research in, you know, 30 seconds to the average Joe on the street, you know, that, you know, how it could impact their life, how it could, you know, change the course of history, etc., then to me, you're not a very good scientist because you should be able to communicate that to everybody, not just to people within your field or, you know, your lab, et cetera. 
Yeah, I mean, if you can't uh, if you can't tell your mom, if you can't get your mom to understand it, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> it's actually um, yeah, it, it, because you know it's your mom and your dad and all these other people that are also forking over some tax money that helps support the work you get you do. Uh, you, you know, I mean that's that's academia the world round. It's it's supported uh, for the most part by um, taxes from you know the government or the local government or or state government or or national government. The, the, everybody's getting money from somewhere, and uh, you owe. The people who fork over their hard-earned, hard-earned tax dollars, you owe them a little bit of, of a, a leeway, an explanation of what you're up to, whether they whether they want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 completely. Yeah, they still deserve to understand it. So, and it's not like you're talking down to them or something. Every, you know, it's like uh, you know you might be trying to to uh, explain what you do to somebody who's a civil engineer, and you know, perhaps uh, civil engineering is. Something that you're in completely, completely in the dark over, uh, you know. It's it's there's no shame there. It's just that life is complex, and we all have our little complex areas of expertise. I oh, know completely. Yes, uh, and then that kind of moves on to the, the the other point that you said there about you know sharing these other stories, you know, within science and the scientific world, etc. Uh, on the various social media platforms, there'll probably be another one by the time this podcast comes out. <laughs> uh, to, to wait and see but uh so yeah so some of those stories i'm familiar with from elsewhere and you know they finally come to light so you know just sharing them others have caught my eye i've looked into them especially when it comes to research papers or news stories regarding conservation not, not all of it is to do with reptiles and amphibians uh that probably make a few frogs cry but sorry guys uh you know you're not the only <laughs> organisms in the ecosystem uh yeah. and you're just trying to Disseminate information as far and wide as possible is important to me because, as we've just said, people need to understand this science and research in order to make it valuable. You know, for them to feel empowered and to, you know, understand where the money is going, especially with the publicly funded stuff. Yes. Uh, and I, I think that, and I feel that, gone is a level of trust. If you can demonstrate. That you're able to communicate that information to you know to anybody, then you know you, you're you know a worthy source of and trustworthy source of information. And some of the research, yes, it is published in inaccessible journals because of the jargon, etc. But most of what I share and, and read are the press releases published by various news outlets on uh, the research because. Yes, I have my specific area of research, but it doesn't mean I know your area. You know, just like the whole conversation right. with the civil engineer, I have that very specific remit of scientific knowledge, uh, and I need to be able to understand what you're talking about as well. So, yeah, if I can make sense of something and it, it sounds cool, you can bet I'm going to share it because amplifying the research of other scientists is just as important as amplifying your own. Because you know, ruling this big battle together, trying to save species and the planet, and, and you know, reverse climate change, etc., uh, and be a lot easier if we, if we work together uh, and saw it as a common, you know, common goal, as opposed to forming these little groups that have you know battles with each other over research and funding, etc. When if we work together, applied for that same level of funding, and reduce the competition, you could you know get a lot more done. Uh, than trying to one-up somebody in a different lab or a different university or whatever. Uh, and I think that that is possibly 
the biggest challenge that humankind faces, you know, within this next century is this level of cooperation in order to tackle these huge challenges that, that face us, such as the biodiversity crisis, climate change, uh, and everything else, because everybody's trying to tackle things in in their own way. When really, it, we need this huge, you know, linked up thinking and, and collaboration in order to really hit the nail on the head and, and end, or at least limit those those problems. Yeah, and and we sit here talking on during what has been called the hottest week in recorded history across the planet. Lots of all kinds of crazy uh, weather things happening in the United States uh, today and yesterday. And uh, we, now we have uh, the United States and China uh, agreeing that they need to go back to the table and start talking about climate change again. Uh, so there's nothing like uh, a plus 100 degree days for weeks on end to get your attention, things like that. So yeah, yeah, and and science obviously has a whether it's frogs or or galaxies, science has to compete against a lot of other what I call entertainment. Um, <laughs> you can't really uh, you can think of promoting science as sort of entertainment, but it's kind of hard to compete against a lot of uh, the, you know what's in in pop what's popular in media. So uh, you just kind of keep got to keep pushing it at people and see. Maybe somebody will will read an article and learn something about frogs or um, you know black holes or something that they didn't know before. So, got to keep it out there for them. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that's part of the whole social media journey as well. Is is just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, and then polishing what does work until you you kind of find your niche and realize what level of delivery and communication works best. Yeah. Uh, and you know for different people it's going to be different because we've all got different skills we've all got different mindsets we all envision things very differently uh, and so that diversity is great but yeah trying to find your niche within that can be tricky at times depending on how you like to you know how you like to be i know lots you know a lot of my friends like to be more visual when produce infographics which i find they're great i just don't have the time or the artistic skill to do that all yeah. of the time uh, as much as i would like uh, so I tend to go for a written format just because it's easy to type something up, uh, you know, have a mind dump, edit it quickly, and then, you know, jobs are good. And wherever it's sitting down and designing something from scratch, uh, if I had more time, then, you know, I'd be all up for that. And I've, you know, undertaken training courses to, to enable me to do that. And I've used it, you know, a little bit in the past, but not completely. It's something I should probably do more of. Well, you're kind of busy. Yeah. It, Exactly. Yeah, I just need some some more free time to myself, and then I can explore those options and, and get back into it. And, and yeah, use that, that skill set and that knowledge to try and create some some dazzling visuals uh, about amphibian reptile conservation in the UK and and elsewhere. You know, but there's nothing like a, a nice photo of a a frog or a toad in a pond or a newt a video newt videos. Those things really get people's attention. So. Can't underestimate that, yeah. You can't, and I think to, the the reason being for most people is because you know they're very different and very unfamiliar. Uh, yeah. You know, especially what we, you know with snakes and, and lizards. You know, when I tell people that I work with reptiles here in the UK, they're, they're kind of amazed that we have reptiles to begin with, let alone that, oh. you know there's someone working with them. Uh, and the reason being is, yeah, you're very unlikely to see them, uh, and that lack of interaction. It's almost equates with you know this lack of you know public knowledge that they exist, 
Uh, so sometimes just trying to break down that barrier through, you know, photos and videos, uh, you know, can help massively to show to people that, hang on a second, these animals, do, you know, do live here, they, you know, they do exist in the wild. Uh, and yeah. the other thing, of course, is that, is that, you know, they're not dangerous and, you know, you shouldn't be scared of them. Right, right. Um, and I, I, I assume the kid, the kiddos get the message probably a lot easier than the adults because the adults are busy. The kids are all, you know, their brains are open to learning and, and you probably run to it. A lot of kids that know a lot about the uh, the various herps in, in Great Britain. and um, Oh, yeah. Especially when they're in that dinosaur stage of, you know, like six to nine, that, you know, the desk went at the best and they asked, you know, some of the, the best questions that, 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 you know, you could be asked. And then, you know, most of the adults are just ignorant to the fact that these animals even exist here uh, or, or yeah. belong here, uh, which, you know, is disheartening to see. But, uh, you know, yeah, so as long as you can get to the kids, that's the main thing, because, you know, they're the next generation of scientists and conservationists and policymakers. Uh, yes. But, you know, if they, if, they, if they rub it on long enough and hard enough for the parents, then maybe that they'll get the idea as well. Uh, you know, so you can't, you know, you can't teach a dog new tricks. Uh but, you know, if you've got a young kid and they rub it in your ear long enough, then maybe you'll pick something up and decide to look into it for, you know, their benefit, but also your own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to uh, – I, I, I came up with another we, – we talked about the the, uh, the grass snakes and we talked a bit about uh, ophidiomycosis, the snake fungal disease. Yes. What I failed to ask you was um, in terms of uh, – the the grass snake populations. Do you see a lot of the the fungal disease in those popu in the population you're looking at? So, so there's a lot of snakes with with skin lesions, yes, but not all of those are aphidomycosis. Uh, so this is something again that I was hoping to continue working on, but COVID came along. I was like, nope, Steve, you can't do that. You have to say that for a later date. So maybe that will be a you know post up or something down the line. Is trying to figure out what are the cause of these other skin lesions in these snakes? Uh, because snake fungal disease, aphidomycosis, is like, it's like a cold or a flu. You know, there, there are other diseases out there and other pathogens that cause very similar presenting clinical signs. But of course, I, you know, I've only been testing for one of them. So it would be interesting to go back to my wow. samples that are all you know, stuck in a freezer. And for those cases where you know, the, the skin lesions are quite dramatic, perhaps do some sequencing, you know, of everything that's in that sample and try to pick out the bacteria or the fungus that's causing those, those lesions, uh, and then, you know, test back the other samples, uh, or at least a, a subsample of them to see whether or not they're present as well as either the primary or, or the secondary infection. So there are a few other known bacteria and fungi that can you know, cause similar clinical signs. Uh, and it would be interesting to know how many of the snakes that I found that were positive for Phidiomyces DNA, the fungus that causes snake fungal disease, uh, also had these other fungi or, or bacteria present as well. But yeah, you have to wait and see how that pans out because I'm not even sure myself yet, uh, sort of about timing and money and all of that fun stuff. But uh, right, it's definitely something I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, so they, those research ideas and everything you know, are developed. It's just trying to convince people with money that it's worthwhile doing, which is always, you know, the, the hardest part. Yeah, you, well, you guys have a limited herpifon and you need to take care of it. And I don't need to sell you on that, but uh, <laughs> I'm, 
selling it to other people is is a hard hard road. Uh, you know, I, I think about uh, the grass snake. Uh, the Natrix is very similar to our water snakes, uh, Nerodia here in the United States, and uh, our garter snakes and Thamnophis and things like that. And uh, these are animals that uh, when they when they hibernate, they're not nestled up in some dry little hole in the ground. Sometimes they're in you know cold, wet places. Sometimes they're in water when they're hibernating and. And so there's uh, opportunities for all kinds of things to get under their skin, so to speak. I oh, know, definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons why mycosis is, is so prevalent within Natrix, at least in Great Britain. Uh, you know, we only have two other native snake species, and both of those tend to prefer drier, sandy, heathland habitats, whereas, yeah, grass snakes, because they're semi-aquatic, that, you know, they'll, you know, happily hibernate under you know, a wet log or something, and where it's cold, or at least, you know, stable temperature, and it's damp, you know, you've also got the perfect opportunity to, for bacteria and fungi to thrive, which may be one of the reasons why uh, snake fungal disease, epidemicosis, is so prevalent, or seemingly uh, so prevalent in that species compared to the other two snakes. But we need more widespread testing as well, because at the, the minute... There aren't many people going out there and swabbing snakes up and down the country. Uh, a lot of the work has, has that has been done has been inferred from carcasses submitted to surveillance programs in order to try to detect stuff via citizen science. Uh, ah. And it would be great if there were you know, more people out there catching snakes and swabbing, and particularly when it comes to translocations of reptiles from building developments and other sites like that where you, you know, you're physically going to handle the snakes either way uh, to, to try and figure what's going on. But again, that has its own snags. You have to train those people that are conducting those translocations how to, to swab the snakes, uh, how to store the swabs before transport to the lab. And then you know, the lab work then costs a whole host of money as well, which isn't always easy to, to come by. Uh, Time, treasure, and talent. <laughs> so again, yeah, that's something that, that I've thought about quite a bit Uh and something that, you know, I hope in the future that we can remedy at this present moment in time. I'm quite sure that you, you also talk to people who deal with uh, snake fungal disease in other countries and uh, other people doing the same sort of research you're doing. I'm, I'm quite sure that you're in contact with, with folks like that. I don't know, definitely, yeah. And, it's a, you know, in Europe at least, it's a similar story to here, here in, in uh -huh. the UK where our picture of what's going on is very limited because that level of surveillance is minimal, uh, if it even exists. And I think that one of the, the things that COVID has done, you know, one of the positives it's highlighted to members of the general public that wildlife can have diseases uh, and spread uh -huh. them amongst themselves and potentially other species as well, which, fingers crossed, will lead to further funding for research like my own and, and in other species in order to try and figure out what's going on, uh, you know, across the board on a, on a, you know, a continent level holistic scale, which, you know, hasn't really been done before. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to dream, you've got to dream big. And so yeah, uh, I, I know there's some preliminary research that's been done to show that SFD is present, you know, throughout most of Europe in at least one or two species. And there's some talk that perhaps perhaps uh, Ophidiomycosis has always been there, and uh, perhaps uh, 
uh, increased cases of it may be triggered by cl climate change or something like that. Is that is that a a fair question? It is, and we need you know further widespread surveillance in order to figure that out. Because without the comparative sequences, that were going on very few data points here to try to to establish that baseline. And as well as Europe, you know where where semi-aquatic colubrids and other species of snakes exist. You need surveillance there, such as in Africa and Asia, where there's pretty much nothing going on right now. Because yes, we've got the pinpoint so far, you know, in Northwest Europe and in uh, the Eastern US, for the most part, there's some in California, etc. But uh, yeah, if you're not looking at the, the global picture, then you're going to just make some poorly informed decisions or at least assumptions about what's going on. Uh, and so, yeah. yes, it's great that stuff's going on in North America. Uh, more so than what's going on in Europe, but, you know, things are slowly ramping up, which is great to see. Because when I started this research a few years ago, I was one of the only people doing what I was doing, you know, on, on this side of the Atlantic. But thankfully, I'm no longer alone, uh, which is reassuring. Because when I, you know, got the first set of numbers that I got, I was like, I have no idea if this is good or bad because I've got nothing to compare it to. Ah. Because now, you know, that that comparative data set kind of exists. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Uh, we need to be doing more on a global scale to figure out what's going on and where this disease came from. Uh, you know, it took a couple of decades to figure out where, you know, with chytridomycosis, the chytrid fungus, to figure out that it originated somewhere, probably the Korean Peninsula, about the 1850s. At least the global pansyonotic indigenous was spread around the world by the amphibian trade and people moving animals, etc. Uh, but maybe something wow. similar here with Ophidiomyces. But yeah, I think we're a, a while off finding out what's going on there, you know, at the moment. But when, you know, we're making steps in the right direction because people are starting to realise the urgency and need to act because we've seen what happened to populations because of the two chytrid fungi uh, and what may happen in, in snakes uh, across Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, and as you said, climate change could be a factor in breeding, habitat loss, pollution, uh, you know, think of a threat that's an effect on the population and, and, you know, it could be implemented in there somewhere as to, it's not necessarily the emergence of the disease because, you know, it, it's likely it's been here for a while at least, uh, but more of the, the increased occurrence of it uh, and our detection. And again, I think that part of that isn't due to, you know, a heightened understanding of how disease infects wildlife, especially after the decline of amphibians due to chytrid fungus. And then other scientists being hand a second, these snakes are disappearing or, you know, what's this lesion? Let's, you know, try and figure that out. And there are all these diseases that are seemingly coming out of nowhere at once. And I suspect that a number of them have been there and we're just discovering them because we're looking at the right place at the right time. Right. And um, we haven't even talked about B-cell. No, no. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that is something that keeps me awake at night because we know it's present in the UK, at least in captive collections, uh, but it hasn't yet been found in the wild. But going by what's happening in the Netherlands and Germany, uh, we, you know, with their fire matters, we don't have them here in, in the UK. But, you know, we have uh, three native species of newts that are highly susceptible. Uh, and yeah, they could not not be wiped out, but, you know, be significantly impacted, uh, you know, over a very short space of time if the disease was able to, or 
when the disease escapes those captive collections and spreads to the wild populations. Right. And uh, just for, um, uh, to, for clar clarity, can you describe, uh, give us a paragraph on what we're talking about here when I say B cell? Sure. So, so for those listeners that aren't aware, B cell or Brachycochytrium salamandrophorans is a infectious. That's fungus. why we call it B cell. Yeah, yeah. It's got a got a tongue twister <laughs> of a name. It's related yeah. to another fungus called BD, uh, which has been known since the late nineties and caused declines and extinctions in amphibians globally. B cell was first identified in the Netherlands in two thousand and thirteen, and has been implicated in the almost or the near extinction of fire salamanders, salamandra, salamandra in the Netherlands. So over the course of three years, the population had a 96% decline uh, and they're all much, you know, all gone from, from that part of Europe now. It's since been found in Spain, Germany, I think it's probably in France, it's been found in Belgium as well. We know it's here in captive collections in the UK uh, and there's been lots of modeling work done to figure out the implications in North America where you know, the Appalachians are the salamander capital of the world, uh, with, you know, the impact it would have there. Uh, and like with BD, research that was conducted in, when was it now, 2017, I do believe, uh, showed that this, this fungus uh, originated in, in Southeast Asia and unfortunately had been spread to Europe via the pet trade and fire-bellied newts from Vietnam or, or that sort of region. And so this highlights the danger of moving animals without quarantine, without screening, et cetera, and then you know, transplant them into a new part of the world. And then that those animals escape into the wild, being released, or you know, their water not being treated properly before it's disposed of. Uh, but it's likely that some of these diseases have been present for decades before we even realized that biosecurity was important or needed. True, because we've been we've been moving animals, like you say, we've been moving animals around the world for a long, long time. Oh no, definitely, and you know, you've got to think that we've only really become biosecure in the past couple of decades. You know, in terms of the, the scientific consciousness and public conscious uh, to do so. You know, particularly post COVID, etc. Uh, but most of this movement was conducted well before then, uh, and so people weren't screening animals or even aware that it was an important thing. Uh, and now we're unfortunately facing the consequences of that. Uh, and you know, people weren't ignorant; they just weren't aware of what was going on and what was, you know, important at the time. But now, due to you know this heightened level of information and understanding and everything else, we can try to prevent those those future uh, pandemics and amphibians and reptiles from occurring, uh, or at least if they do start to occur. You know, we've got a few case studies where we can limit that as much as possible or, or try to and, and uh yeah to try to prevent as many species from possible as going extinct as would have done if we had it intervened somewhere along the line yeah and i i can see the um, governments stepping in and stopping all trade uh, i'm sure that's happened in some countries now already but uh i can see this becoming a a more prevalent thing because uh unfortunately you can't just ask people well to uh maybe not import that newt uh they're going to do it to really stop that is to put put some regulations and and stop the trade unfortunately uh that that's seems to be what we're up against 
it does and, and again you know the simple way around that would be to screen every animal and you know quarantine them etc again that comes down to right. time and money and not everybody has the patience for that either uh, which doesn't help and so yeah you're up against that as well so regulating the trade is definitely the best foot forward uh, until you know at least another alternative option is devised uh, because you know, for, you know, for some people, this is their livelihood, and the last thing you want to do is, you know, cut that that lifeline for them. Uh, but to preserve the wildlife in your own country or you know your own area, you have to be a bit selfish. We've seen what invasive species can do in New Zealand and, and Australia, and as as hard and troubling as it is, sometimes you just have to put your foot down and go, guys, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't a good idea. You know, just just stop it, uh, and hopefully, you know, there'll be an alternative in the future once we have a better idea of what's going on, and you know, have devised simpler, more cheaper testing techniques and you know, everything else. But yeah, at the moment, just stopping that trade or heavily regulating it is probably the best way to to prevent the introduction of these these novel pathogens into those populations where they're going to be most damaging, uh, so that you don't have to deal with the the fallout and the collateral damage later on. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean the the cost, the risk is great. So, um, so I'm you know at this point I'm thinking, sure. I mean I'm I'm sorry you can't import the newts you want to import or export, but we really have to not take chances with this stuff until we understand it better. Uh, I always you know I try to get back off the negativity negativity <laughs> because there's so obviously sometimes there's just so much negativity around us and what we're trying to do and what the the animals we're trying to uh, save and enjoy. But, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, you did some, you did some survey work with midwife, midwife toads yes. in, uh, in Great Britain. And can you tell me uh, a little bit about that experience? Cause I, I, the midwife toad is not native to the UK, is it? It is not. No. So they were introduced to Bedford, uh, which is, uh, just North of London. Uh, in about 1903, so it's been here over a century. Uh, and the population where I started the study uh, is in Cambridge, where I lived for six years. I did my undergraduate there at Anglia Ruskin University. Uh, and me and my colleague, Mark, heard these rumours of midwife toads being around since about 2013, uh, so, you know, about a decade ago. And uh, the site where we were told that they could be at uh, is now uh, like a, uh, an old people's home, but then uh, in its heyday was a maternity hospital. Uh, and so we went to this old people's home. They had a pond. Uh, and we're like, oh, can we, you know, can we check? Uh, you know, can, we, can we check for the amphibians in the pond? Ask, ask them some questions, etc. cetera. Uh, and it came to the conclusion that it was most likely African clawed frogs they had there previously, uh, rather than yeah. midwife toads. If you're working in a midwife hospital and you see a, you know, a frog or a toad in the tank, you're going to kind of put two and two together and get five as opposed to uh, what we were looking for. But it okay. turned out that the uh, the midwife toads weren't too far away, they, you know, a few streets away from where we were looking. Okay. Uh, and we found them by just printing off a load of leaflets and sticking them through people's doors. Uh, and, you know, we, we posted and we posted close to 300, and I think we, we had three responses. And this was back in the summer of 2015. Uh, it was, you know, this time of year, it was early July and we, 
went to the first garden. Uh, it was this French guy called Christophe that's let us into his garden. So I should say that in, in most of the populations in, the, in Great Britain where midwife toads occur, they're in people's back gardens, uh, you know, restricted by, you know, terraced housing and you know, high fences and everything else like that. So, you know, they're very localised and they usually usually occur or where uh, somebody has accidentally introduced them into the garden via palm plants or, uh, you know, they've moved house from somewhere where they were present in a flower pot or, or something like that. They've moved to this new location. Uh, this is the way we think they spread, at least, is what we're currently investigating. Uh, and then, you know, they set up a shop and then a few years later, people start complaining about the noise they make, which is almost like an electronic beeping sound. Here in the UK, it sounds like our, our uh, smoke alarms or a dying battery or a, a really lousy car alarm. Uh, I'm not trying to think of an American equivalent, but uh, yeah, just, just think of like a, a an arcade machine that's beeping once every one and a half seconds and is a single oh monotonal note. And if you have a few mouths together, then yeah, it goes crazy. Uh, so we, we had these these leaflets out. The first guy that we went to uh, lived in, in southern France. So he's used to these. Uh, and he thought they were native, uh, but they reminded him of home. So it was happy for us to come around his house and, you know, poke them around a bit, uh, as you do. Uh, and because they're non-native, we had to, to uh, apply for permits to work with them to release them again, because the law states that if you, they're one of the, the listed invasive species, if you capture one, you can't release it again without breaking the law. Uh, so you either have to keep it or euthanize it. Uh, but because these are in people's gardens, we were like, you know, we can't really, you know, tell them what to do. If you want to do the research, you can't come in there with a with a heavy hand. It, it, exactly. Uh, so you know, we did everything by the book, uh, and you know, still continue to do so. Uh, and you know, we've had some great cooperation from those residents and elsewhere around Great Britain as well. Uh, so I did think. You, now, did you so, find an origin for these toads? I mean, genetically, did you look at them genetically and say, "Well, well these we haven't are from yet the south know. of France," or? Oh, okay. It's something we're working on at the moment. So okay. the, the story goes that in 1903, that the population that was introduced to Bedford came from the south of France. But we're not sure yeah. whether or not that's true at the moment. So we've taken DNA samples from a couple of dozen populations around Great Britain uh, so far. As we speak, one of my colleagues is currently collecting one from another population right now. So after we've recorded this, I'm going to have to go and find out how it's got on. And we've got another, we've sampled a few populations over the past couple of summers uh, that are going to go off for sequencing soon, and then we can line them up with the others we've got so far, uh, and then compare that to the sequences in Germany Bank and trying to figure out where all these guys came from. Uh, but something that we we so go ahead, because you got a question. So I was just thinking, it's perhaps 1903. Some kids come back from holiday, southern France. They bring some some toads with them and put them in, the, in their backyard pond, and maybe that's an origin story? Something so, so like the, the, story, this, the story is that so the site where they were introduced to in Bedford used to be the site of a garden nursery, and so it's thought uh. that the, the, the tadpoles or the adults came in with a consignment of plants uh, and then okay. you know, spread from there. Uh, and I should also say, because you know, I'm saying midwife toad like it's uh, you know, everyday language, but for those people that aren't aware of them, there are small uh, toad species found in continental Europe, you know, from France into Spain, all over to Germany, and uh, they're about five centimeters in length. 
They're grey and mottled with dark spots, and they get their name by the fact that the males carry the eggs on their hind legs until they're ready to hatch, where they stick them in a pond. Uh, so they have a very different breeding strategy to our native species of amphibians. So like I suspect most amphibians that people are familiar with in North America, our native species are explosive breeders. You find them in ponds in, in the spring, and then afterwards the adults disappear and you're full of, you know, you've got ponds full of tadpoles and, and, and larvae and metamorphs come, you know, later on uh, in the summer. Uh, whereas midwife toads, they breed between May and September, which is you know, coming towards the end of that cycle for our native species. Uh -huh. And because of that, they can have multiple breeding cycles a season. Uh, and depending on, you know, when you're laid as, as a tadpole, uh, as it were, they, they can overwinter in ponds if it's, the, you know, towards the September, October end of, of the scale, because there's no point trying to metamorphose, because by the time you do, you're going to you know, freeze to death. It's going to be cold and frigid. Uh, you know, it makes more sense to just hang out in the pond and wait for spring next year. Uh, and the, the tadpoles that do that continue to feed in the ponds. They'll eat their smaller, weaker conspecifics. They'll continue to eat the other wildlife that's in the pond. They'll grow. Uh, and then come the, the following spring, when you find them in these ponds, uh, you know, two or three times the size of, you know, the, the freshly or, or the, the, newer, you know, the, the newer cohort of tadpoles. Uh, so I'd imagine that trying to think of a North American example would be, you know, like comparing a bullfrog tadpole to a yeah. to a tree frog tadpole. You know, like you've got this this huge unit of a tadpole, and then this tiny uh, little one next to it, and you know, the same species, but one of them is almost a year older than the other one, and they're sat there, you know, waiting out the cold months for the best part of, of you know half a year, ready for that opportunity. So they're metamorphosed when it gets a bit warmer. I just did help my friend Josh Holbrook do some amphibian surveys about about a month ago, and I saw the very same that very thing you described: uh, big overwintered bullfrog tadpoles and tiny little tree frog tadpoles next, you know, in, in the same trap in the same net. So <laughs> exactly, exactly what you're talking about. And yeah, uh, it's incredible how big those overwintered overwintered tadpoles are. They're huge. Yeah, there's a real striking difference that, that you know, the first time you see it, it's quite jarring because you're like, how the hell has it got that big? You know, what's happened here? You, you think it's some mutant and then you do some reading into it. You know, the first time that we saw it, what's going on? Uh, you, you look into it and you realize that, oh, yeah, of course, you know, this yeah. tadpole's overwintered. And from from that study that we conducted in Cambridge, as I've already alluded to, we've been studying another you know, a number of other populations, sorry, around the rest of Great Britain. And we've also been studying and testing the midwife toads for, for BD. Uh, they're one of the most susceptible oh. species to BD in Europe. And because at the time of year when we're conducting our surveys, the rest of our native species are they're present in these gardens, you know, not in the ponds, but, you know, in the surrounding vegetation, underneath bricks, you know, where it's dark and, and, and wet. Uh, and so they're a lot harder to survey reliably. So we've been using the midwife toads as a barometer of amphibian health. Uh, and ah. if any of the species in these areas are going to have BD, it's most likely the midwife toad seeing as you know, their susceptibilities through the roof compared to the other species. Uh, and so far, all of the populations that we've swabbed are negative for uh, BD, which is great news. Uh, and it's probably linked to the fact that for the populations we have swapped, there's 
almost certainly a close link to the Bedford population. Not so much for the Cambridge, we're not entirely sure where they come from, but uh, these populations have been introduced predate the introduction of, of BD or Kidred to Europe. I see. Which means that, you know, that that level of, uh, you know, yeah, the, the middle of toads were lucky to, to skip that level of, of disease uh, and decline in Europe. And then, you know, by coming to, the, to Great Britain and finding refuge here in people's gardens, annoying some people, but, you know, a lot of people like them and enjoy their, their beeping tones. But yeah, I guess some of that, that lack of, of love, as it were, comes down to disconnect with nature, but also understanding what the what toads are or were. It, during the COVID nineteen pandemic, when people were you know stuck at home for large periods of time, and they were sitting out in their gardens more, we had a spike in a number of people contacting us, reporting these calls of midwife toads because people had cool. heard them for the first time, or they were convinced then to try and figure out what they were because they may have heard them once or twice, you know, over a span of a few years, but it wasn't until yeah. they were forced to sit in their garden for extended periods of time that they realized, hang a second, exactly. Yeah. This, this yeah. isn't just a one-off this, you know, this is happening every night. Uh, we should probably figure out what's going on. Wow. That's cool. And you know, that's sometimes some people in the middle of a worldwide pandemic take the opportunity to learn things. <laughs> they do and again the the project wouldn't be possible without the cooperation of the homeowners and you know, everybody right. that's involved because you know in the pandemic it was hard to conduct surveys and, and all that sort of stuff because you know you're going to people's properties and uh you know yeah. rummaging around the place but uh you know pre-covid and, and, and now uh you know people are more than happy for us to go into the gardens lift up plant pots lift up paving slabs they're rummaging around inside and underneath their shed, you know, go dip a net in a pond, etc., uh, and try and find midwife toads and their tadpoles as well as other amphibians in the area. Uh, and usually we're rewarded with tea, cake, biscuits, etc., which is great. Uh, and if they've got young kids, uh, then we tend to, you know, tell the kids what's going on as well. And I remember a couple of years ago when me and my colleague Mark were, must have been, must have been 2017, we were surveying the, the Cambridge population and one of the families there. Uh, they had two young daughters uh, and, you know, they were really involved, you know, with what we we're doing. They were, you know, following me and Mark around uh, like shadows trying to, you know, figure out what's going on and, you know, trying to help out. And the, the you know, word of what we were doing, you know, these two weird men coming around to put the toads in the garden, you know, got to their, their school. I think they're only you know, six and, and seven years old. Uh, and a whole bunch of their friends came around the house that evening because they knew we were coming to look for these midwife toads. Uh, and so we had to, you know, give, give a bit of a spiel to the kids and their parents and, you know, let them know that the, the, that the parents of the children that had obviously spread this story at school, that, you know, they weren't insane, they weren't crazy, we were doing valuable work uh, and that this garden was, was special. Uh, and it was great to, you know, get the youngsters involved and, you know, have some of the questions, you know, wasn't expecting a whole field of, uh, you know, a whole Q&A session, but, you know, th th there were some wonderful questions there and you could see that a lot of them were, you know, just plugged into the natural world uh, and have a better understanding than most of us adults. Huh. Uh, I have to say that I also really like your your use of the sneaker net where you, uh, you take uh, flyers and just carry them around the neighborhood. Hey, it's, or have you seen these frogs? Uh, and uh, you actually got uh, enough of a response back to 
sort of st- stimulate a, some some um, some study. And I think that's a, a pretty cool use of uh, uh, getting out there and, and uh, wearing out some shoe leather. No, no, certainly. Uh, and, yeah, as good as technology is, you can't beat the old-fashioned methods. And so sometimes you need to do some some hard graft, figure out the best areas to target and, and where to, to place these flyers, these leaflets, these posters, etc., and then go from there and hope that people will get back to you. And the, the crazy thing is when it came to those hundreds of, of leaflets that we posted in Cambridge, some of those gardens where we'd posted them, it turned out that these the, the midwife toads existed, but the people never uh, responded to us for a whole host of reasons, but we've since connected with them and continue to conduct surveys there. Uh, and sometimes you just have to put yourself in their shoes and realize that not everyone's free. People are sometimes busy. You know, they don't have the time or the means to get back to you all of the time. You know, you're not their top priority if they've got young kids or you know they've got a busy job, etc. Uh, and it just falls by the wayside. Uh, so sometimes a bit of encouragement and another round of those flyers can help. But we just trusted they'll get. And thankfully, some people came forward and we've built that connection there. And we've you know carried out a similar level of of communication with various other people at the, the the other populations around Great Britain since, and we continue to do so. So thankfully, yeah, using the old-fashioned techniques do still work. Not everybody is a slave to their phone or a laptop, etc. And I think that if we're going to be posting items through people's letterboxes, you need to try to make them as eye-catching as possible. Uh, so we tended to put them in envelopes, put some frog stickers on them or drawings or make them colourful, etc. So they stood out from all of the junk mail and other stuff that was dropping into people's letterboxes, uh, as well as making them look as official as possible with, you know, a photograph of ourselves, logos, names, telephone numbers, emails, websites, etc. that people could look up on to make sure that you're not an exporting murderer uh, or, uh, you know, some trouble, etc. And then, you know, you gain a level of trust after a phone call or two or a meeting, around the house where you know you have a cup of tea, you have the biscuits, you have the cake, etc. Then they show you your garden uh, and you're away from that. So all of that has been possible because of, of these mail drops with these leaflets. Uh, some of them have been possible via email, uh, social media, etc. But none of this would have been possible without the information we got very early on in 2013. Just uh, a quick rumour to say that Cambridge may have midwife toads and... Uh, our determination and our, our dying need to find out whether or not that was true or not. And here we are uh, 10 years later with a national project hoping to wrap up uh, later on this year, looking at the origins of midwife toads in Great Britain using some mitochondrial DNA uh, based on sequences we've collected from 30, maybe more populations now. Uh, so yeah, keep an eye out for that because that is going to be a uh, yeah, absolute monster of a paper when it's released not not in length but in terms of uh just uh, how many people have been involved and how long it's taken to to get to that point i know you know a lot of people have conducted research in the past that has involved a large group of people and has taken a long time but being personally involved with this one uh yeah it's something that i'm going to be proud of and i'm sure of that well i also have a question uh after publication in uh you get these uh, sites. Uh, people, more and more people know about midwife toads in uh, in the UK. Do you feel like that 
maybe a, a management plan might be needed or, or, or some kind of um, conservation issue that, that, that needs to be addressed here? That's a very good question. At the moment, I'm not entirely sure. We're, you know, we're trying to assess their impact on native species at the moment, and there isn't any evidence to suggest they're causing any negative effects as it is currently, but that, that may change in the future, uh, especially with you know increasing climate change and their native populations becoming smaller and more isolated. Uh, so yes, midwife toads may need to be managed in the future, and that's definitely something on the back of all of our minds because they're a non-native species. We have to have you know permits to work with them because it's illegal to re-release them after you've handled them. Uh, so we've talked about this as a group, and yes, it is a bit of a tricky, contentious issue, uh, especially seeing as we're not entirely sure if midwife toads are native to to Great Britain, despite. You know, lots of other amphibian reptiles have been fossil and some fossil evidence of them. Midwife toads are so small that you know, you're going to miss their bones either way. Uh, yes. But management may be required in the future if and when evidence comes to light that suggests that they're having, you know, a negative effect on, on native species. But at the moment, that isn't there. Uh, but knowing where they are is important in case that needs to be done in the future. Gotcha. Okay. We'll track this for... For future uh, investigation, uh, and so the the grass snake project will roll on, I, I assume, for a while. Hopefully, yes. Uh, and if you know, if it all goes to plan, uh, I'll be continuing with that as a postdoc uh, once we get some some money and some funding in, uh, and and then try to train up some other people to then carry on that uh, either as masters or PhD students. Once I, I've I've fully fledged and you know left that project behind. Uh, because as much as I love the animals at that, that site and, you know, it's become, uh, you know, somewhere that I hold dear to my heart, uh, you know, you can't stay somewhere forever. Uh, and, right. you know, I would love to, you know, to train up somebody that, you know, was then able to study it for the next four, five, six years, or at least to be involved with it uh, to, you know, carry on where I've left off. Yeah, I, it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? You put so much work in it, you've got a, some sense of ownership about it, but sometimes it is time to hand it over so you can tackle other issues. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and knowing when that is is yeah, a bit tricky sometimes uh, and not exactly cut and dry, but uh, yeah, I, I think that after the postdoc, it'll probably be my time to, to leave that and let somebody else fill my shoes and catch some grass nicks and figure out what's going on and try to answer some of the questions that they have about grassnick ecology and, and the disease side of things. long as somebody's working on it. Exactly, yeah. Good, okay. And it's World Snake Day, by the way, so. It is, yes. <laughs> uh, let me ask you, too, uh, uh, do you have interests or, or other projects going with other um, uh, herpetofauna in the UK? Yeah, uh, there are a few other projects. Uh, and there's <laughs> there is a disproportionate number of projects compared to the species that we have here. So we only have 13 native species, and about the same again they're introduced. Although not all of those introduced species are widespread and you know forming these uh, self-sustaining populations. Some of them are, uh, and so 
of our other native species. I'm also involved with projects looking at slow worms, which are our only native species of legless lizard. Oh. They're often confused with snakes uh, because yeah, they look just like them, but they, they blink and they don't have a neck. Uh, I'm sure many people will be familiar uh, with, with your legless lizards in North America, but also the skinks in, in Australia and elsewhere that look extremely snake-like but aren't, uh, which you know is always fascinating uh, to people when you know they see these animals and you know you're handling them and you show them like, oh yeah, this is just a lizard. Uh, yeah. And whilst all snakes may be specialised lizards, uh, obviously not all lizards are, are snakes. Uh, so yeah, it's it's great to be able to to demonstrate that and just to try to break down people's misconceptions about these uh, these animals. Yeah. And, uh, you know, lizards blink. They don't have that unstaring eye that serpents have. Exactly. And with, uh, with slow worms as well, whoever named them, they're not slow, slow they're not worms. Uh, but the worm is an old English word for a serpent. So that's how they get oh. their names. Okay. And, uh, yeah, the, the, their tongue is heart shaped when you, when you look at it, which is you know, pretty neat. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not know that. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and yeah, also involved with projects looking at non-native alpine newts and uh, non-native marsh frogs, both of which, unfortunately, there is the evidence base to suggest that they're causing negative effects on a native species. So, that, you know, there may be some measures in the future to uh, control the populations a little bit more than we currently are. But, you know, it's just one of those tricky situations as to where and where don't you intervene, what do you do, how do you control stuff? Because unfortunately, being aquatic amphibians, they tend to like the same environments that our native species do. And so if you're going to modify their habitat or do something to try to control them, then you're likely going to negatively affect native species as well, unless you're just able to catch them all during the breeding season, round them up uh, you know, by hand. But then you're going to miss juveniles that are, you know, in the trash environment until they're sexually mature to come back to the ponds. And it's a really complex web of intervention and trying to figure out what's going to be effective and what is it in both the short term and the long term. Yeah, it is so – and we, we see that in, in uh, uh, North America with the bullfrog, which yeah. you may or may not have over there too. But they're devilishly hard to, to get rid of once they're established in places. Oh no, yeah, there were populations of bullfrogs here, but I'm pretty sure they when it they were exterminated in the early parts of the the 2000s. There are the occasional one or two still popping up because people had them as pets, and as you say, they're, they're hard to exterminate once they do become established. And so, once that probability of detection gets low enough, you think you've removed them all, and then the population booms for a little bit. You go back, you remove some, uh, and then you know it, you go in those successive cycles. But as far as I'm aware, nothing like that has been seen since about 2005, 2006. Hopefully they're gone. But obviously we're not scanning every square inch of the countryside to figure out where and where not these animals are. So there may be some out there somewhere. Right. Because there's not enough of uh, people like you out there to, to, to throw at these projects. Unfortunately not. It does sound like you've got more. There's just plenty of work you could be doing. It's... Uh, must be hard to pick and choose what kind of project you want to <laughs> tackle. It, it can, can be hard to pick and choose and also prioritize uh, and find funding and, and enthusiastic volunteers to help with things as well. But you know, thankfully, the, 
you know, more people are getting involved with these sorts of things on a daily basis as those misconceptions and fears get broken down and people realize that, you know, we do need to act on both the climate and the nature crisis. Uh, and this, you know, there's lots of these small citizen science projects that people can use as a, as a gateway to you know, bigger and larger things. Uh, once, you know, they've, they've found which niche they want to be involved in, you know, whether it's, you know, with, with people like myself, or reptiles and amphibians, but, you know, there's other organizations that are, and the individuals that are running projects that are with mammals and birds and insects and other wildlife as well. Sure. Yes. Well, it, it sounds like, um, it, you know, the citizen science thing, it sounds like it's kind of the same over there as it over here where, uh, you know, it, it's not just for idle retirees like me. Uh, there are projects that even kids can get involved in and help in terms of monitoring uh, uh, things like that. So, uh, anyone really can, can join in and help with some of these things. I know definitely and having that diverse range of ages and backgrounds really does help with, with those, you know, those types of projects because you get all sorts of wonderful ideas and thoughts coming into, into them. You wouldn't necessarily have, you know, come up with yourself. Yeah. Well, anything else uh, you want to talk about before we shut this one down? Uh, I think that's, that's probably it. Uh, you know, I've had a wonderful time chatting to you about everything. Uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to people listening to this at some point in the near future and, uh, yeah, flooding my, uh, you know, my Twitter feed with questions in right. case there's anything that, you know, I didn't make clear or they, they want to pick up on, uh, and yeah, just find out more. Okay. I'll, I'll publish, uh, your, your social media contacts. I think you're, you're on Mastodon and maybe, and Facebook too, right? Yeah. Twitter, Mastodon and Facebook. Okay. Are you on Instagram? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty easy to find too. Okay. I'll root all that out. We'll put it in the show notes and then folks can uh, find you and, and, uh, ask you endless amounts of questions. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> okay. Steve, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you and, uh, I wish you all the continued success with your projects. So, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, it's been great to chat to you and to get to know you as well. And yeah, uh, no doubt we'll have another conversation like this again sometime in the future. I would like that. Thank you. Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen Elaine. And uh, after we were done recording and had said our goodbyes, I got to thinking about Steve's account uh, of visiting the local pub in his uh, musky field clothes. And it occurred to me how this was such a great way to normalize science and scientists in the community. You, you know, you walk into the pub and there's Joe who does auto repair and uh, Susie who runs the bakery. And uh, who's that guy on the end? Well, that's, that's Steve. He studies our local snakes and toads and things. You didn't know we had snakes? Well, you should probably go down and talk to Steve then. You know, he's a bit smelly sometimes, but uh, he's all right. Just another person in the neighborhood, to paraphrase Mr. Rogers. And I think we could use more of that. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's it for episode 85. I want to thank Dr. Stephen Elaine for coming on the show. It was a fun chat, and now I'm very interested in learning more about Natrix, Natrix and uh, midwife toads. 
And as always, I want to say thanks to all of the So Much Pingle patrons who keep the show rolling on into the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help to support the show, it's easy to do and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. Now I say it every time, but I do like hearing from folks. I like to hear your thoughts and your opinions, guest suggestions, whatever you got. So you can email me at so much pingle at gmail.com. And of course, so much pingle is all one word. Also, please note that I am on Instagram and Mastodon now under the So Much Pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>